welcome to another episode of the Comfort, Comfort Monk, Monk Podcast. And not just any episode, we have Gerald Casale of Devo on the show, which is an absolute holy grail for us. I uh, can only speak for myself, but when I started doing this with you, Eddie, I really, uh, really wanted to get both Gerald and uh, Mark Mothersbaugh at some point as well. Um, so this is a huge one for me. I'm really excited about it. And yeah, it was so cool getting to chat with him. Um, he, we really like kind of dove deep. He was bringing out, uh, you know, we kept the cameras on the whole time. He was bringing out some pretty like wild uh, Devo-related memorabilia and stuff and showing it to me and just talking to me about just anything and everything that I was throwing at him. I was kind of nerding out a little bit, but he was he seemed to be enthusiastic about talking about it, so it was pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, they, they are back uh, on the... I mean, I guess they're only doing a few kind of more festival-type things this year, but they're playing at Punk Rock Bowling and a few other things. Maybe, I want to say maybe Riot Fest, but could be wrong there, double-check. But uh, And Gerald just put out a new... Uh, Released for Record Store Day, um, which is awesome. I just picked it up from Papa Jazz today. Um, so definitely go look into that and get your hands on it. And if you can, if you're lucky enough, try to catch Devo this summer. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to try to. I'm definitely going to. I'm going to try to see him in Vegas when I'm out in uh, California in September. But, uh, yeah, they're. I mean, Devo speaks to me in a million ways. They're so creative and so willing to let the freak flag fly and push their own creative boundaries and uh, just kind of. They're so much more than a band. You know, obviously they think of themselves and as and de, you know, de evolution is more of like a philosophical. Uh, yeah, concept. It, it runs deep, and you know, a lot of people see these guys with. Uh, you know, with eccentric outfits and everything else and wonder, oh, is this some sort of shtick? And it's really like, it's so not that. It, it, I could see how, you know, at, at face value, you might not know what to make of it. And I think that's kind of the point is to, to make you, uh, put you out of your comfort zone a little bit and, and kind of get you thinking differently and, 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 you know, try to get you to be creative as well, I guess, along the way. But Anyways, I love this band, and I love the fact that we were able to get him on the show. But this is our chat with Gerald Casale of Devo. Enjoy. I know I am very much looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. I mean, so over the past year, obviously, I know you haven't been in a position to be doing much as far as traveling. Has it been, uh, you know, a year where you've been able to focus a little bit more on the winery? Yeah, I I drive between uh, Santa Monica, California and Napa quite often. And I stay up there, you know, periodically there's more to do when you're making wine. And then there's periods where there's less to do. So I'll be up there like a month at a time, then come back. And uh, I've been doing that. And I've been making a lot of inroads up there with the culture up there. So I know more and more people and more places are taking my wine. I'm having a, a nice time because I've made friends up there. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, man. And I, I think that my goal is to order uh, one of those Pinot Noirs here and hopefully we can do a little... Uh, on mic sampling before yeah. uh, before we uh, post the episode, which I think would be cool. Yeah, um, yeah. After this, I'm actually heading into to go work at a beer garden and sell some wine. We're uh, 
you know, I think we've got a pretty decent little wine selection there. We've got the, are you, are you familiar with Black Ridge? That's our, uh, Black our Ridge? house Pinot Noir. Yeah. Where, where, what's the area Black Ridge is from? I know it's California. I'm not exactly sure what area in California, but. Okay. But that's pretty solid. I, I thought maybe it's Central Coast. I don't know why I'm thinking that, but I haven't had it though. Yeah, it's solid, man. Um, I mean, it's nothing too, too expensive. It's, you know, pretty affordable, but it's tasty. That's um, nice. I like yeah. affordable and tasty. <laughs> yeah, that's a good combination. Yeah. Well, um, so, you know, are, are there any, like, big plans on the horizon for, for 50 by 50 this year? God, uh, big big plan is just, you know, growing the brand and trying to create a wine club with direct sales because – the, the game, you know, the wine biz game is all rigged against the people who make the wine. Like, if you want to, like, not make money in the wine business, then make the wine. <laughs> um, so you know, who's, where, where's the profit at? Is it the people, the, the middle person is, is where the money is? Oh, yeah. Distributors. They, they have a stranglehold on the business and they, they make all the money. And then to a less degree, the retailers and shipping. Shipping has gotten insane. Shippers have figured out how they can stick it to you. And they've used for a year and a half now the all-encompassing excuse of COVID-19 to lower the bar on service and reliability and pump up the rates like 30%. Yeah, that's un- unreal. I mean, I, I ordered something just uh, not wine-related, but just a uh, some t-shirts the other day and it was, I was still getting that. And I was like, I'm not really sure how it would affect shipping at this point, but it doesn't. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I get it. I'm not trying to like, you know, everybody's getting back on their feet, but there is a certain point when you're like, all right, well, if we're all able to be vaccinated, I'm not entirely sure why there's no one at work, you know, they, they seized upon, you know, the crisis to ream people, you know, they yeah. just exploited it. Yeah, I mean, so it goes, I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, man, there's just like a million things that I could pick your brain about, and I'm not going to uh, make you go on and on and on and on, since I know today is going to be a long day for you. But, um, man, well, first off, when we started this podcast, I had a short list of of like holy grail guests, <laughs> and in the past week, I've gotten two of them. Obviously, one being yourself, which I'm so thankful to have on the show, and then. We had Bill Stevenson and Miley Walkerman of The Descendants on, which just, you know, big formative band for me in my youth, too, um, which I think maybe there's some kindred energy there, you know, at least on the uh, yeah. pursuit of like creative creative pursuits outside of the normal realm of uh, rock and roll, you know. Um, and also, you know, social consciousness and justifiable anger. And yeah, all exactly. But yeah, so, um, you know, this is huge for us. So, I mean, I have lots and lots of questions i've been deep diving uh just you know kind of going down the rabbit hole there's just so much to appreciate about you guys but if you're cool with it i'd love to take it pre-devo and i kind of want to pick your brain about you know obviously within the context of devo you are heavily involved with the lyricism and i guess as far as the instrumentation primarily in bass and keys live but before devo were you were those your primary instruments or what did you start out on yeah, drums and bass. Yeah. Okay. And I, and yeah. I, I started writing songs, you know, using the bass and writing, playing and singing and writing when I was writing my own early attempts at songwriting. And uh, it stayed that way for quite some time. I mean, you have to understand Devo came from this concept of de evolution, which I'm sure you've heard. And the de evolution thing started with my friend and I, Bob Lewis, at Kent State University, because it's a term we came up with to kind of describe an uh, all-encompassing explanation of what we were experiencing. That is, we thought the world was in decline. We thought culture was going the wrong direction. We thought that even then, we thought the idea of a democratic republic was being nipped away at by disinformation and corporations and right-wing religion. We were, it was all true. 
and there was the, you know, this, this terrible kind of uh, uh, military industrial complex uh, that was growing uh, as, as we were warned by none other than President Eisenhower. Figure that out. A <laughs> right. Event, like explaining it. So this is the context in which this idea of de-evolution came up. And then I was an, you know, I was an artist. So I started making what I called devolutionary art, right? In other words, well, what would art look like that's devolved? And so I started trying to make examples of that. And we shortened the word to devo as a kind of like a, you know, a satirical attempt at what corporations do, where they come up with a snappy anagram or abbreviation that makes right. it sound friendly and happy, you know, like Devo. Yeah. So we came up with that. And that's about the time I met Mark Mothersbaugh. And, um, and Bob and I started talking to Mark about all these, you know, concepts we had surrounding de-evolution. And, and he really, you know, he just took to it like a duck to water. And then I said, well, what would, what would devolutionary music sound like? Because he had been in like a progressive rock band at that point. Right. He was doing like complex stuff, like how many notes can you play? How many time changes can you make? You know, it was like Emerson Lake and Palmer kind of stuff. And I was in a blues band, a famous local blues band in Kent called The Numbers Band, 1560-75, fronted by Bob Kidney. And I was getting pretty good at, at mining the blues. But of course, that's, you know, that's not really creative. That's really kind of academic where you're playing this roots music created by oppressed black people. And here you are, this white kid, you know, uh, you're kind of have, you kind of have uh, black man envy, you know, because you love, you love what they do and you can't really do it the same as them. Right. So, you know, Mark and I agreed that he wouldn't do anything that he was doing, and I wouldn't do anything that I was doing that sounded like unoriginal, copy, like part of music history. So we would just get together and experiment. So it was very experimental, and we realized what we were trying to do is find a minimalist language that would live up to these uh ideas, these verbal raps about de-evolution, we were trying to find music that was proof, proof of concept, like here, this is a Devo song, right? Absolutely. And it took a while, you know, it took a while, but it was great to just wipe the slate clean, you know, and start with a just a blank sheet. And we had rules, like we had self-imposed rules. That's what was so much fun. We'd go, okay, you can't make a musical change just because you've played eight bars in A doesn't mean you're going to go to E. You can't do that. You're going to have to explain why we're changing <laughs> and right. why we're changing. <laughs> and and it was great. Uh, you know, we really we really stripped it down and we made it intensely primitive. And at the same time, because of Mark's uh, contribution of the synthesizers he had a mini moog at that time that he'd just gotten in 1974 and a art odyssey and uh so now the music had this kind of electronic edge to it and a futuristic edge to it at the same time it had a primitive thing coming from me and my bass and you know i would make up most of the drum parts and uh and they were they were written they were architectural they weren't jammy rock and rolly drum parts it right. nice with strange, you know, accents and weird fills. And, uh, and we didn't have any kind of like normal, like eight bars, then four bars and, and four more bars. You know, you'd hear Devo go 20 bars and then change for two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you'd go, what's that? So that's, that's, that's when it was truly exciting because it was all collaborative and while Mark was musically trained, you know, he'd taken piano lessons, mm -hmm. he, he had to consciously try to get rid of that training. And then we added his brother, Bob, who could play rock and roll guitar really well. 
And he taught me more about uh, um, music structure. And so I was getting better at playing more notes, but being careful not to play too many. And I was, you know, excited. In other words, it's an inspiring to have these different uh, skill sets among people that are kind of in the same, in the same aesthetic ballpark, you know, and there was a brain trust there. Everybody was yeah. So we couldn't wait to get together at that point every day, no matter what you had to do between work or school or whatever. By the end of the day, we knew what we were going to do. and We were going to get together in a basement or a garage. And it was just, that was what we did every day and night. You know, that's amazing, man. And, and, you know, I mean, having that shared, uh, creative vision, but right. like you said, so many things, uh, uniquely special about each individual player, like Bob, both yeah. of the Bobs, that relationship between both, both your brother and, uh, uh, Bob mother's It's an amazing, like dynamic between the two of them. Um, well, I mean, and, uh, I couldn't have found outside people to play those strange parts and strange sounds that we wanted. We couldn't have, any self-respecting guitarist that thought he was like cool wouldn't have done it. He would have said, fuck you. Yeah, so, I just want to do blues riffs. Our brothers understood us. Yeah. So, well, so, you know, speaking of understanding your brother, I'm curious if like, you know, in your, you know, formative years, you know, teenager or, or even before, if you and uh, your brother Bob were, jamming in the house in any context was it was no. it a musical household no i i was by the time bob started playing guitar i had left home because you know i grew up in a blue collar authoritarian household you know well meaning but stifling you know uh and 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 the parents had bought the catholicism thing hook line and sinker and it just came to loggerheads. I couldn't take it. It was an insult to a, a anybody that was intelligent, that cared about information, logic, reasoning. Uh, you know, you don't like to be told, well, why do I have to do that? Because I said so. You know, right. why is that wrong? Because the church says so. So, you know, I was destined to, like, say, fuck you and make a break. And I did. And... I only found out later that Bob was starting to play guitar and that he had a band, you know, cause I was four years older than him. He was in high school and formed a band called the Wipeouters. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, I, I was amazed cause I, I had been out of the house at that point. I, I was at college. I was playing bass. I had joined 1560, and we started my brother and I started hanging out again together. And he was in radiology school at that point. And, um, really? and I love the kind of stuff he came up with on his guitar. He came up with very strange, quirky figures. I mean, he's the guy in those early kind of bluesy Devo songs, like I'm a Potato and things like that. Like, he came up with that stuff. He came nice. up with it. He came up with satisfaction. Our whole, our whole, you know, deconstruction of satisfaction started because Bob played that figure. <laughs> yeah. And we're going, what the fuck is that? And it was mathematical and kind of almost sounded Asian or something. Uh, and we got off on it so much that we started fitting parts to it. Yeah, I mean, I think satis your take on satisfaction is a perfect introduction to the band. Just like uh, I think I've heard you say before that it's just like a it's a sonic uh, representation of the theory of de-evolution as yeah. opposed to having to explain it, which is perfect because it's literally like you know it, but you don't know it. You know, right? Like, what's de-evolution? Listen to this. Yep, and it, that's all you really need. You get it. You know, yeah. uh, as far as a, a an art concept, I mean, of course, there's deeper conversations to be had other than just sonic qualities of the evolution right. but, but it, it really but does it put it in a the joke you know that's the important thing it wasn't a joke and and it's it's disconcertingly strange but it works it, it, you hear it and you hear how the parts interact 
polyrhythmically interact and you're going, what the fuck? If you dissect that song and listen to each part, you wouldn't guess that the other part that you're about to hear would be in the same song. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if you break that song down to just what's going on with the rhythm section alone, it's like you have no idea where it's going to go. And then eventually. The, the, I know it's not on the one. Yeah. And then eventually you do get the like play on the uh, classic riff that is mixed in. But even the even when you get to the dun, dun, nah, 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 it's, <laughs> even that is like weirder than you've ever heard that well, yeah. sound <laughs> yeah, playing that well that was an afterthought this that song didn't start as as an attempt at covering satisfaction it was just a pure musical jam and it didn't have any changes in it that even um hint you know reference any kind of change in the song satisfaction and the rolling song stones song and it was what, we re what really happened is at some point when uh, the two Bobs and I and Alan were playing and Mark hadn't really done anything, he was just listening going, what are they doing? You know, he started singing Paint It Black over it. You know, it didn't really work. We were kind of laughing because he started singing Paint It Black over this abstract piece of music. And it was my brother Bob once again who goes, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute sing satisfaction over it right so we're all laughing and mark starts singing satisfaction over it and suddenly the cadence works so i stop and i add the change you know so he'd have he'd have the the the, the chorus to sing to you know he could the lyrics would yeah. not fit because we had to change. So that's exactly. how that happened. And believe me, we were we loved it. We were dead serious about it. And we got in trouble for that song. We first of all, we had to meet Mick Jagger and get permission to put it on the uh, Warner's debut album, or Warner's wasn't going to let us put it on there because um, intellectual property was taken very seriously back then. Right, what we had done to it was changed it so much that it was considered in, in the legal world parody. And so you had to get permission from the writer to do a parody. So Interesting. I thought that I, that's, I did not know that for some reason, I thought that the parody law was that you, that almost made it where you didn't have to get permission, but I guess that's not the case. Wasn't the case as far as Warner brothers records, a legal department was concerned. They right. put their foot down. So they flew, they flew, Mark and I to New York, we met with Mick and his uh, manager at the time, Peter Rudge, in New York City, near the Warwick, Warwick Hotel. And we had to play it for him. And, you know, <laughs> we thought at first he was hating it because he was just sitting there with his head down, sipping a glass of wine <laughs> in this big leather chair. And after about 30 seconds, he puts the wine on the floor, gets up, walks over to the boom box, turns it up, and starts dancing around like Mick Jagger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, whoa. You know, we're like Bill and Ted's great adventure. Like, we're not worthy. And he's dancing. He goes, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and, uh, Man, that's incredible. So that, you know, you could argue that that's not even, a, I mean, like you said, obviously, if the parody law came into play, but you could argue it's not a cover. You know, I mean, it's just, know, it's, it's, it's basically throwing... Uh, their lyrics onto a completely different uh, composition. But right. I do love that that you had that moment and that you got, I mean, how cool would that have been, you know, having Mick's stamp of approval? Well, there is a, there, 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 there is a, a button on that story. We, Mark and I flew back to Los Angeles, met with our new manager at the time, Elliot Roberts. And we go into his office on Monday and we go, great news. You know, Mick really liked it. He goes, I know, I know. He goes, listen, I had called Peter Rudge before you guys ever got there. And I had told him to tell Mick that, to say he liked it because <laughs> Warner's already promised Abco, the publishing company, that the Stones would get all the publishing from your version. You guys don't get any publishing. You just get the recording, the specific master money that's it 
<laughs> is that how it really shook out? Yep. Wow. I think yep. the Stones do have a, a long history of uh, having a real tight grip on, you know, like when that band, The Verve, did uh, yeah. Bittersweet Symphonies and then they ended up yeah. getting yeah. all no. the royalties. Yeah. And then they, I, and of all, uh, well, the story goes that they said, okay, well, if you guys write another hit song, we'll give it back to you, which is just the ultimate slap in the face, you know. Yeah. Of course, as, as if Mick and Keith and Charlie and all them need any extra cash, but, uh, you know, so be it. <laughs> they play hardball. They're, yeah. they're, they're people. Their lawyers play hardball. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, well, that wasn't the end of our problems. I mean, uh, to this day, and I know this from third parties that are insiders, uh, Jan Winner of the Rolling Stone magazine, you know, the guy that started the magazine, mm -hmm. the editor, the big kahuna. He hates Devo because obviously he named his magazine the Rolling Stone because he worshipped the Rolling Stones. Right. And he decided that our song was disrespectful and making fun of the Rolling Stones. And that's why the Rolling Stone magazine always sent out reporters to trash Devo from the get-go from the release of our debut album. And it's Jan Winner that kept us from even being nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame year after year. He hates satisfaction. He doesn't care that even Mick Jagger liked it. That doesn't right. cut any ice with, with Jan. Well, I think it's fair to say, and especially if you take a peek at uh, Rolling Stone in the modern age, yeah. uh, there maybe are, uh, you know, they don't quite have their finger on the pulse on what's really happening out there, you know. Yeah, they turned themselves inside out like so many, you know, so many corporations and so many bands. And, you know, it, it, they become exactly what they were railing against. They become what they didn't like. Right. And, uh, well, you know, speaking of these, like, interesting, you know, these are not, I mean, you know, Bands come up with hurdles all the time, but it seems like you guys from the jump had like a whole lot that you had to sort out. Like when it comes down to the, uh, you know, the Are We Not Men album cover with Chi Chi. Oh, yeah. We got in trouble. Well, one thing I was curious about is I know that you're that the label made you get permission and then you got the permission after you had already created the mutated version to try That's to right. get around it. But I was curious. Something that because I watched that short doc that came out, the Chi Chi and Devo doc. Um, but one thing that I felt like was not addressed that I was curious about is how did you get away with not paying whatever the golf ball company was for the actual? Uh, well, I mean, I know in the long run you didn't use that exact image, but it seemed like the label wasn't concerned with the fact that you were taking the lifting an image from whatever right. the golf ball company was, right? Well, that is a good question, and it you know, because of how many layers there are to unpack here, that never came up again. So that was the least of our problems. Plus, right. you know, in the ensuing years, th there is actually a term in the art world for um, taking imagery that exists and decontextualizing it by representing it out of context. And, and it, it, I, I, I personally, I think that's legitimate. It's not just a legal maneuver. I, I really think what the artist does when they appropriate imagery like that depends on what they end up with. And right. certainly we transformed it enough that I don't think in the end, had we been able to use the image we wanted, I don't think we would have been in trouble with that company that printed that. Yeah, in my mind, you know, it's so artfully done. And like you said, completely new context. There's, there shouldn't be an issue, but if you're, you know, if you're going so far as to, to act like without having Chi Chi's uh, approval, you know, the, then it's like, well, if Chi Chi has to give approval, you would think whoever copyrighted this image probably needs to get involved too. But it you was know, some I'm, little local company. I still read, I, ha I have it somewhere. Um, where is it? Yeah, I, it, it, on that, on, you know, that was, uh, I forget what that's called when there's a cardboard card 
where there's a plastic bag stapled to it with the product inside. That header card has got a name, and I have it somewhere. I'm going to take one look right now because I think it's a local company like in Kent, Ohio. Oh, wow. Go try to find it. That'd be amazing. Wow. That is incredible. And what it says here, it says six each Kent practice golf balls. They were the plastic golf balls. Down here, it says Kent Sales and Manufacturing Company, Kent, Ohio. And it Who would have thought that that would have been a Kent, Ohio company? I mean, obviously, it makes sense if it got into your hands that, that it was local, but that is just mind-blowing. <laughs> that is so awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was talking to, uh, to my boyfriend's father, who's a big uh, golf enthusiast, and I was like, did you know about this relationship between Devo and Chi-Chi? And his head practically exploded, and he was talking about the – the bullfighter antics. And I was like, I knew that I would get to her dad if I could work the angle of golf into this. <laughs> you know, meeting Chi Chi was really something. I mean, it was a 40 year buildup to meeting Chi Chi, but uh, uh, he's, he was way out. He's way out. I mean, he, he's, I think he was 80 something years old, really sharp, but a conspiracy guy, but really articulate. And he'd been a Republican all his life, but unsolicited by me, he goes, do you know why I'm no longer a Republican? I go, I didn't know, Chi-Chi. He goes, but it's not, on, it's not in the cut. It's not in the cut that they made. He goes, Donald Trump. Whoa. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he seems to be a vile guy. And he looks at me and he goes, he's driving the golf cart, right? And I'm riding in it. He turns and he goes, he cheats at golf. What? Say no more. <laughs> oh, my God. That's unbelievable. That yeah, Chi-Chi you know? has uh, just about made me finally uh, come around to playing golf. I've never quite gotten, a, gotten the hankering for it. But I was like, man, Chi-Chi makes it seem like the coolest damn sport ever. You know? <laughs> yeah. He was uh, – he, he was uh, – well, you know, he's still married to the woman that created all of his golf outfits and his hats, hat bands. Really? Yeah, she's Hawaiian. And they were headed, after I saw them down there in Jupiter, Florida, they were headed to the Maldives where he was going to get some stem cell replacement thing that they offer down there because he's convinced he's going to live to 120. I hope he does. I hope <laughs> I'm happy and healthy 120. <laughs> yeah. I think there should be a follow-up on that. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Man, he just is like a – I mean, like he said, I'm sure back then, maybe even more than now, like, you know, there's not a whole lot of creative energy in the golf world. There's just no. get the ball in the hole. And having somebody go out there and just flip it on its head is exciting, man. You know, taking a sport that a lot of people who don't have an active interest in think of as boring, you know, it's like one that doesn't translate well on TV necessarily – uh, and then just absolutely change it. <laughs> right. It's a perfect character for you guys to have involved in, yeah. you know, in your art direction, you know? Yeah. I would have loved to have seen a world where he like was on mic in the studio with you guys doing something of it. Cause he's a great singer. Yeah, that's what I heard. He didn't sing for me. Yeah. And, but you know, I'm glad you guys got the little bit of collaboration that you did. Cause that's amazing. Um, well, man, I mean, there's a lot that I want to pick apart, but one thing that I've been really curious about is, I mean, from the jump, Devo seemed very, uh, I mean, obviously it's all very uh, calculated and thought out, but as far as your stage presence, there's a ton of choreography involved, and yeah. I couldn't help but be super curious as to what the rehearsal process was like in those early years. Like, were you guys, who was calling the shots? I'm like, all right, we're going to do this number here. You know, like whether it be uncontrollable urge where you guys all come to the front and do the little leg move together. Like who's who was kind of directing. Yeah, the I was there? doing all that. You know, I was doing all that. And then after a time by the third or fourth record, you know, Mark was also adding things that he personally come up with, you know, just experimenting around. And when he hit on something that made us all laugh, we go, OK. 
yeah, okay, but do that and do that for 16 bars, but then just freeze, you know, like I was the choreographer guy. Uh, that, that move you're talking about an uncontrollable urge, you know what I, you know what it was? I said, okay, now when when it gets to the part, I go, we're going to do the alley shuffle. <laughs> but that's what it turned into when four white robots tried to do the alley shuffle. Right. <laughs> that's amazing. And, you know, if you break it down to just, you know, some of the things that are maybe less synchronized, but the more individualistic aspects to the choreography, there was just like a certain, like you guys had such a precision to your like inhuman movements. Yeah. Like it's not like you're up there doing the classic robot. You know what I mean? You guys weren't, yeah. that would, that would have probably taken it from uh, Art Devo into something that was a little more slapsticky, but you guys, you guys instead moved in a way that was truly felt uh, non-human and not, uh, and, but in a way that was, like, have you ever seen uh, on a really high def television? Do you watch an old video and the frame rate hasn't been adjusted? How everything just doesn't look quite right? Yeah, you guys were doing that in real time, basically. Yeah, people thought uh, when they saw us on Saturday Night Live that the video frame rate had been manipulated. That it was That's what it looks show. like. It's unbelievable. And it's only because what we were doing, and of course we played it tremendously fast speeds back then. Uh, the idea was, you know, and the idea that was verbalized is move based on what you're playing, like move based on the part that you're playing. Make sure that what you do is the visual version of what you're, what sound you're making, what you're playing. So okay. everybody just did that. And the idea would be don't walk around arbitrarily either stand still and only move your head and arms, or if you move your feet, make sure it's on purpose for a certain part of the song and then stop. Stuff like that. And then we just do that until what anybody had chosen to do, you know, really fit them. Where you go, that's really good. What you're doing there, that's really good, right? And so you right. keep doing it. And some of my favorite ones are like, there, there's a, there's a tape from some French TV show from 1978 where we're doing um, Too Much Paranoia. Mm -hmm. And we developed this thing where the two Bobs and I are circling the stage in an oval. Right. So we go behind Mark and in front of him. And he's, he's just stomping and playing, you know, his the, the, the noise guitar, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then when he gets ready to sing, we stop and just start jumping on the one. And he's, he's singing into the microphone, just stomping. And it, it looks incredible. You know, there's, it's very simple what each person is doing. But when you see it on the French TV yeah. show, it, it looks like um, kind of chaos. You know, it looks crazy, like some modern dance routine. It's yeah, crazy. yeah. It's I mean, it, it all speaks to the like some of your parts. It, it's it's when everything's synchronized like that. It's just you can't not you can't look away. You know, it's, a, right. it's captivating. Right. Um, well, you know, I guess one thing I'm curious about is you know when you're about to record uh, the first record, obviously you guys were flown out to Cologne, Germany, right, to record yeah. that. Yeah. Had you done much in the way of uh, traveling both in the States or out of the States? Not at all. None of us. Period. I mean, I got to think about it. At that point, I had once flown to Los Angeles and back to Cleveland. And other than that, we had driven to uh, Los Angeles and drove back to Akron. And, and we had driven to New York City three times and back. And that was it. That's all the and traveling all, anybody did. And Nobody, all of those, that was all in the context of performing, right? And those, yeah. those early traveling experiences. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if there's ever a band that I think, you know, some people uh, might get homesick or what it might be from being culture shocked like that. But I think Devo is going to thrive on culture shock because that's, 
I personally did. I, I loved traveling. I loved being in hotel rooms. I really liked seeing all the countries I've seen, all of them. I, I, I loved the experience. So when you were over there, uh, you know, starting to track this record and all, had you, I guess there's just so much that happened in the first handful of years of Devo's existence that it's like, it gets confusing as the timeline. But so when you, when you met up with, with Neil Young and were working on human highway, had you all started tracking the first record at that point? Yes. uh, We had, more or less finished the first record, but we weren't happy with a couple of the songs when they turned out. And because of being in San Francisco and because of working with Neil, we met this guy, Patrick Gleason, I think his name was. He had a studio called Different First Studios where a lot of the kind of, you know, granola, hippie um, bands that had made it out of the San Francisco scene had recorded there and Neil knew him and Neil wanted to shoot in his studio uh, a scene for Human Highway where he jammed with Devo and so after that jam Gleason offered us a deal to record Come Back Johnny again like to re-record the song to see if we could get a better version to put on the album and uh, and so I know we record and we we recorded that and I can't remember the other song we re-recorded there, but we only used "Come Back, Johnny" from that recording. All the rest were done with Connie Plant in that studio outside of Cologne in this little town called Neunkirchen, Neunkirchen, and uh, only only "Come Back, Johnny" was from different for. Gotcha. Yeah, Different Fur is still going strong. I have friends who, um, who've who recorded albums there within the last 10 years, and I mean, it's still a really great space. Um, it's, it's just crazy to think of. I had no idea that that was the same space that you guys had done that in. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, um, I guess, um, I know I'm not being linear at all here. I'm jumping kind of all over the place, but uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, one thing that I was thinking of, so, you know, you've, you're the... I guess like seven inches, what it was, the, the B stiff, uh, that came out on stiff records. Right. I had, had two big questions about that. One, if you hadn't traveled a whole lot at that point, is there a particular way in which the, uh, European label even got, you know, that got Devo on their radar. And secondly, is the track, uh, basically like, uh, it feels like naming the track B stiff is almost like, a demented jingle for the label you know but well that's why they wanted it obviously that song existed four years before we ever met those guys oh okay it it was just a devo song that existed and it had been on some of our early demo tapes and somebody got them a demo tape you know the guy dave robinson that ran the company and he heard be stiff and of course oh thanks how about how about recording a real version of this and because we had, you know, they, they had bought our self-produced single to distribute in, in London and all of England, uh, the one that was Jocko Homo back with Mongoloid, right? And now they wanted a new single. And I, I forget what was on the B-side of B-Stiff. Was it sloppy? I think you're right. That sounds right. Yeah. And that's the one... That's the one that used this as the sleeve. Okay. On yeah, the original. Yeah. yeah unaltered. <clears throat> yeah, that's incredible. Um, yeah, I'm just curious because you think, you know, you know, right now it's not insane to think of a European label finding you because obviously the internet has completely changed accessibility to music. But back then it took somebody like the person you said who got the demo over to them, uh, like a little bit more of a personal touch was required back then, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, we got him his obsessive interest with Akron, Ohio, where he, you know, he came over then and and decided, oh, it's not just Devo. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, kind of, what's the word, conjure up, you know, this, this idea that there's an Akron sound, which there wasn't, but 
that's why he tried to get any, you know, Rachel Sweet and Chrissy Hine and yeah. whatever else he was, Tin Huey. And, and he tried to make it, you know, like what happened in Seattle with grunge, right? He tried to make it yeah. like it was happening. It really wasn't. Nobody even interacted with each other in, in Akron, Cleveland area. We didn't hang out with Chrissy Hine or we didn't hang out with Perubu. Uh, David Thomas of Perubu hated Devo, you know, he, yeah. he called us the Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, I guess so, that's just a bit of rewriting history or, you know, you know yeah, being idealist about it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And Dave Robinson just saw it as a marketing ploy. Right. Right. Trying to sell the town of Akron as a whole. Right. I will say that there's something to be said about Ohio as a, I mean, there's definitely like, some oddly specific energy that can come out of there. Um, but I wouldn't say it's, it's like serial killers. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. We're right up I, I, serial killers really? right up there. I did not realize this. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up going, uh, to Jeffrey spending, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of my summers, uh, in my childhood in like middle of nowhere, Ohio called Galpolis and Cadmus, Ohio. These two, like, I would never expect you to know where these places are. Um, but so my, my understanding of Ohio is like Amish country. That's what I was around when I was growing up. So I don't even, I've never really spent any time in the actual proper cities of, of Ohio. So I really don't have any feel you of notice that. When, when, uh, when elections come up and, and you know, you're watching cable news and they, they give you the election maps and you're looking at Ohio, you'll see like two areas of blue, two little areas of blue around Cleveland and Akron and then down in Columbus. And then the whole rest of the state is red. Yep. All red. And so you've got a combination of hillbillies, religious right-wing evangelicals, Amish people, um, kind of gun nuts, you know, farmers and gun nuts. And then you have this really progressive culture in a couple cities. Yeah. Where all the universities are, where all the medical schools are. And that's why Ohio is a, is a psychotic mess because it wasn't really the Midwest. And those who cared about what was going on were privy to anything that was happening in New York or in San Francisco or LA. We knew everything and we were following it and we were, you know, up to the minute on it, right? Right. And and we and we were living as if we were there too. <laughs> you know, it was kind of vicarious New York. Yeah. Uh, and and so the people in Ohio that were cool were really cool, really had an edge, and really had, as you can imagine, uh, a compulsion and a drive to get the hell out of there. Like, it's good to be from Ohio if you're not in Ohio. Yeah. No, my, I talked to my mom uh, who got out of Ohio immediately after she graduated. I mean, because right. not only is it Ohio, but we're talking Amish country, Ohio, where you have nothing to do. So oh, she would go to like, you know, drive all the way to West Virginia to see Bowie play, which blows my mind that West Virginia was ever a tour <laughs> stop. But apparently... Uh, there was a some town in West Virginia where everybody played. She saw she saw him on the Diamond Dogs tour. I was like, that blows my mind. But yeah, I saw I saw him in in Cleveland. Uh, yeah, doing that, doing that too. Yeah, so I mean, you know, they I think it's, it they all came to Cleveland. Oh, for sure. I mean, that that makes perfect sense. But you know, Ohio, it's I. So we're in South Carolina here, which has a lot of the similar like yeah. you know crazies that you're yeah. mentioning. But what blows my mind is that a lot of people from Ohio vacation in Myrtle beach. And I'm like, man, if that's the place that you're like looking forward to going to, where are you coming from? <laughs> Cause I grew up pretty close to Myrtle beach, maybe like 45 minutes from there. And it yeah. is just an absolute desert of, uh, you know, beach stores. If you want to buy yeah. a hermit crab and a beach towel, it's the perfect place, but otherwise, you know, well, you know, <laughs> What can you say? I mean, the bar is pretty low and life is pretty sad for most people. Yeah. So I, I take it that when you guys got to L.A., 
you were not really looking back too much, right? You're yeah. pretty, have you spent much time in Ohio in your adult years? No, I would just go back there to see um, my brother, Roger, who, you know, he's a well-adjusted guy and he likes being there, you yeah. know, and he's a, he's a head of a bank and, uh, and, and my parents who were aging and we'd well, go back to see them, you know, now they're both dead. And, uh, that's about the only reason I would go back. Well, I mean, I can understand, you know, with your, with your brother hanging out, you know, as much as I want to, I could sit here and talk about South Carolina having its, uh, lesser qualities. There's something to be said about the fact that I'm still here as well. You know, I mean, there, there's, uh, uh, you find your little, like, uh, your little corner that works for you and you can get cozy. Um, you might be surrounded by insanity, but I, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter where you go. You yeah. know, you could be in LA and you got just as many, uh, you know, Looney Tunes hanging around there too. You know, well, LA is not all it's cracked up to be by any means. And let's, let's really, you know, be glad that cool people can be anywhere and that they all don't want to be in one of two cities that would ruin it anyway. Yeah. Then you, you would know. never tour because you'd only have two places to go to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, you have the, the single coming out for record store day. Um, yeah. the, I'm going to pay you back. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I'm curious about it when, you know, when you recorded it, what, what kind of the backstory is on that track in particular? Well, the, uh, the company, uh, real gone music took interest in re-releasing my 2005 Jihad Jerry and the Evildoers record, uh, where I adopted that satirical persona, alter right. ego, and it was called "Mine Is Not a Holy War," and you know it was a an indictment of the made-up war that that Bush and Cheney got us into in Iraq, and uh, they said. Well, do you have any outtakes or anything you could add to this record? And I said, not really. There might be, there was one recording I made that I never took beyond a demo, and I'll look for that. And they go, well, would you write a new song? And I thought, let me think about that. And I remembered that Josh Freeze and I would screw around before Devo started rehearsing you know, like for the 2010 tour, yeah. uh, something for everybody. And we would always just, he'd make up ridiculous stuff. And then I'd start a bass part and just make up lyrics extemporaneously on the spot, trying to make each other laugh. Cause Josh Freeze is a very funny guy, and very spontaneous and fun to be around. And he started doing this one drum beat and I started singing, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. And, and yeah, uh, we've all, we've all heard that before, whether, yeah. whether it came to fruition or not. <laughs> yeah. They, well, this, this was more like, this was more like, I'm going to pay you back for what you did to me. Oh, okay. I got so, you. So you think it's about paying somebody back. Like you owe them something. Right. Right. Like, well, no, I owe you something. All right. I owe you some vengeance. And, uh, so it's like, it goes into this break, 100, 200. I'm like throwing money at him, 300, 400, 500. And this bullet makes seven. <laughs> and um, That's amazing. <laughs> then I started making up some verses, but we never took it any further. So he, he brings it up all the time because there's about four or five songs we did like that. And one of them's West Virginia Boy. And that could be the next one we do. So anyway, I went down to Long Beach about three months ago and we recorded I'm Gonna Pay You Back for the first time from memories of what we did and from lyrics I had written down. And we played with uh, the Oingo Boingo guitarist, Steve Bartek, is that his name? I think so, yeah. Original guy. Yeah, because Josh yeah. has been playing in and around Oingo Boingo forever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he did a whole EP of stuff recently with Danny Elfman. Yeah. Crazy. Well, anyway, Taking it back. 
we recorded it, and I thought it came out really well. I mean, we just sat around listening to it and loving it and laughing at it. So I, I gave it to the guys at Real Gone, and they liked it a lot. And they go, could you do a video to this? And I go, well, you know, I, I don't really have the dough to do a video, but I'll ask my friend if Davey Force. Davey Force is a great video artist that did stuff for Devo in the past. It's a, his, his forte is animation and, and CG. So I had an idea for shooting me on green screen and having him put me in a CG environment. And we came up with a cheap way to do it. And I worked with him and um, there'll be a video coming out. To, I'm going to pay you back. Hell yeah. I can't wait for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, obviously you guys have had such a rich history of, of video work, whether it be within the context of Devo or just all of right. the other uh, video work that you've been involved in. I guess one thing I'm curious about is, you know, are there creative ideas of yours that, uh, or just creative goals of yours that you'd like to accomplish you haven't touched on? Because most people that, you know, you know, I guess, in comparison to a lot of other artists, you have such a long and winding road of a creative journey and you've done a little bit of everything, but is there, are there some things that are in particular that you major things? I mean, you know, the story of Devo is the, the story of potential versus a truncated reality. It's a very sad story. I mean, what you saw was supposed to be the tip of the iceberg. There was supposed to be, a Devo musical. There was supposed to be a Devo feature film, you know. Right. There's supposed to be a real Devo Inc. Um, design company, like, in other words, diversification totally. So you would have Devo clothing line. You'd have, you know, Devo uh, flatware. You'd have Devo bowls and... <laughs> right. And devices, you know, electronic devices. It, that, it was really, honest to God, lots of effort, lots of energy went into trying to make these things happen. And I just couldn't get it done. You know, well, at some point, Mark was just checked out. He, he wasn't helpful at all. Right. Well, I mean, you got to think, uh, certainly it wasn't for a lack of ambition, you know. Um, <laughs> I think that those are huge ideas that uh, that you know bringing to reality are uh, an uphill challenge. But I mean, you guys, even within the context of uh, of of creating you know products when you were uh, when you were when you started to actually manufacture some of the garb that you wore and right. get that out to the fans, or right. when it comes to the the Muzak recordings, or right. you know, you guys got. I mean, it it was clear where you were headed, and right. and I think that you certainly more than dipped your toes in that to that side of things. I know, but that was just supposed to be just the beginning, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know that your relationships change, and that the the working relationship isn't um, identical to what it was at that era. Yeah. But ho hopefully, there are uh, you know there are some similar creative energies between the the remaining members of the band to you know you can there's still time to, you know, to accomplish so a lot sad. of that so sad about my brother's death is he he stayed true to the spirit of evo and we worked well together i mean on that something for everybody record it was him and me in the studio you know six eight hours a day five days a week for a year putting together all that stuff yeah. I mean, it's, a, you know, the, the journey of Devo has been amazing. It would be regardless of who, uh, or, or regardless of uh, the added sentiment of having the, the sibling experiences. But I mean, yeah. having, having a, a brother along for that, I mean, it's not like you had to come home from tour and tell him these cool stories. He was there with you. It's amazing. It's great because there was a shorthand. You didn't need to explain everything. Right. You, you got it. We understood each other. So do you feel like mom and dad ever like even came close to wrapping their heads around you guys as artists? Yeah, yeah finally they did, I think. Finally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if nothing else, they had to have uh, appreciated the fact that uh, you and your brother were experiencing the world together and uh, seeing 
everywhere, you know? I, I mean, so yeah, in the beginning they were mortified and, you know, you know, the kind of people that were their friends, they had to like make excuses for <laughs> what I was doing. Uh, you know, they were embarrassed, humiliated. And then suddenly Devo's everywhere and Devo's on TV and, and it was just, okay. You know, my dad turned around and pointed the finger and was like, okay, now you can shut up <laughs> on this. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, parents are going to be concerned, especially, you know, they're just, that's part of their job. Right. But uh, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's beautiful that, uh, that Devo became what it became and that they were able to, whether or not they fully grasped the, the abstractness of it, they know, I mean, they're of a generation where you might not expect them to ever fully grasp it, but for them to at least uh, be validated in the sense that my son's doing all right, you know? Right. There you go. Yeah. They forgave me in the end for leading my brother, Bob astray so that he quit being a radiologist. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's probably the parent's dream is for him to just finish that up. Yeah, go, have a legitimate job. And so was Bob the baby of the family? No, not at all. He was, I was number one, he was number two. Then there was um, uh, Rebecca, my sister. Then there was David, my next brother. And then Roger, the guy I go see in, uh, in Akron, Roger. All right, so a proper big old Catholic family. Oh, they just kept churning them out because they weren't allowed to stop it, right? Yeah, basically. Yep, that's yeah. the nature of it. My uh, my best friend and one of my longest running musical uh, collaborators from my youth. He's from a his parents are from an old school Catholic family, and it's like nine brothers and sisters or something crazy, you know? Like, I mean, that's just can you imagine just squeezing everybody in into a house at, in cold Michigan weather? <laughs> It seems pretty irresponsible, but you know, yeah. <laughs> when <Okay>. you're <laughs> when you're buying into fundamentalist religion, reason and logic are thrown out the door. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's not even part of the equation in their minds. You know. No. Well, you know, um, I'll, I'll just touch on a few more things because I want you to be able to rest up and you know get. Uh, you yeah, know. it's heading towards noon, and I'm going to have to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess. Uh, Really, the only things that I that I really want to try to get from you uh, conversationally at this point is just kind of like what uh, how your feelings are going into these upcoming festival gigs and like on you know obviously the past year has been <laughs> de evolution in the modern world has never been more apparent but wow. you guys are getting back out into the world at least a little bit with punk rock bowling and and all that and you just kind of get a feel for your headspace for getting back into it. Right. Um, I have always loved performing personally. I'm a great proponent of that. I put a lot of energy into designing the stage shows and the costumes. And I always thought that music is about performing. I mean, that, that is the basis. That is the primal drive. What makes a person get up in front of people and play and sing. Like what makes you think that you have the right to do that? <laughs> right. It's nerve, right? But it's also some kind of imperative that you don't really choose. You find yourself having to do it. And no matter how successful you get or how much studio time you have, it all comes back to the best songs get developed by playing them in front of people. Yep. And, and I can't wait after this hideous alternate reality nightmare that we were all funneled into, like an alternate universe of horror, you know, COVID-19 horror. I, I can't wait to see what happens when you're allowed to have a normal interaction and play. Right. And I, I have a feeling it's going to be tough because people won't even know how to behave. It's like getting out of prison and they don't know how to be free. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's going to be a bit of a, like that uh, growing pains or, or 
learning curve to getting back to yeah back on our feet again. But I will say this: I mean, if you know, I th- people are thrilled anytime you guys are playing. But after a year of not seeing, or a year and a half of not seeing any music, right. I think you're going to have some. If nothing else, you're going to have some rowdy crowds on your hands. <laughs> I hope. I hope that's the case. I I hope it's not like they've gotten so much um, PTSD from the from what's been done to them by a year and a half of of fear and lockdown and virus that they're not too afraid to even, you know, come back to life. Like somebody that got in a car accident and then they're afraid to drive. Right. Right. Uh, I hope it's not like that. I hope you're right that they just like, Oh my God, this is happening. And they fucking go nuts. (laughs) And I think there's going to be a bit of both. There's going to be some people who have gotten more comfortable at home and will stay a little more at home for a little while, but I think yeah. that there's going to be just as many, but probably significantly more who are so fucking tired of sitting at the house. I hope you're right. Wanna, uh, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I've always been a social person. I like going places. I like meeting people. I like having dinner and having great conversations and drinking wine. And this has been debilitating. Yeah. It's a, it was a, you know, I mean, I think everybody has been having a hard time processing it. It's been wild, but I'm so glad that the world's slowly getting back on its feet. I'm going to be out in LA in a late September when that Vegas gig is happening. So I'm trying to get my hands on a rental car and come out to see you guys, man. Cause you know, I, uh, that would just be amazing to see. I don't have the train that goes there after 20 years of talking about it. Insane. Yeah. But I mean, a rental car, four hour drive, well worth it. Um, but yeah, I, I am so glad you guys are going to be playing and thanks so much for coming on, man. I, I can't, you know, I'm not trying to just blow smoke, but like the creative energy you put out into the world has been so inspiring to me. Uh, and just your willingness to embrace creativity at all sides and, you know, fly the freak flag and <laughs> kind of call the world out on its shit. You know, there's just so much to appreciate about what you've done and thank you for making one of our, uh, her Holy Grail moments happen on the show, man. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And if you get that rental car, let me know and I'll put you on the list. Hell yeah. Well, I'll stay in touch. Thanks so much. And I'm looking forward to drinking some of your wine soon. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.